Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Ah, the playbill. Here we go. Adverts for cigarettes and fur coats. <laughs> the past. <laughs> the 80s. Here we go. How many have you seen? Oh. What else was on okay. in 1988? Where are we? Cabaret, Joel Grey. Oh my God. Wow. Nick, Anything Goes with Patty Lepone. Patty Lepone in Anything Goes. Amazing. Oh my God. Macbeth, Christopher Plummer in Macbeth. And Glenda Jackson. Glenda Jackson. Madonna. Oh my God. And Speed the Plow. Bloody hell. She... Here she is. Oh my God. Carrie, Betty Buckley in Carrie. Betty Buckley in Carrie. Tuesday to Saturday at eight. Oh my god. Oh my it's god. actually actually on. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually on. Doesn't give an end date on there, does it? No. It's probably out of date already. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Chapter six. Act two. Shit! Look at all these pigs. Welcome to Out for Blood, our, what would you call it? Um, oral history. Perfect, oral history of the infamous Broadway megaflop, Carrie the Musical. My name is Chris. And I'm Holly. And this week we are delving into the madness of Act 2 of the show and finding out from the cast what it's like to be part of the only Broadway show to feature a song about slaughtering a pig. And, of course, the big moment at the prom where Carrie gets covered in the blood of said pig and destroys the place. How the hell do you do that on stage? Well, let's find out. So, the interval slash intermission is over, the bemused audience members have downed a wine or two and they're ready to tackle the second half of this delirious theatrical feast. The curtain rises on a location that the playbill ominously describes as the pig farm. As the synths kick in, Charlotte D'Amboise as Chris literally crawls from a fiery pit in the stage. For those who had heard about it, this number was what they'd been waiting for. On one bootleg audio, an audience member is clearly heard exclaiming with delight, Oh, it's the pig number! Oh, it's the pig number! (laughs) It's because this song is batshit crazy. Nasty Chris, now in a red leather bra and miniskirt combo, has persuaded her boyfriend Billy to come along and slaughter a pig. Shit! Look at all these pigs! 
collect its blood in a bucket and string it up in the school gym, where they will unceremoniously dump it on Carrie at the prom, fixing the vote for prom queen to ensure she gets as humiliated as possible. What a bitch. They are accompanied by Billy's gang of bad lads, who, for reasons we will never know, are dressed in full S&M style leather. This scene is in the film. Yeah, but it's not like this. It's nothing There's like no this. Leather. No. Dean Pitchford recalls his confusion. Not just leather pants and a leather shirt, but leather straps and leather vests and very revealing. And and Charlotte, uh, um, who played Chris, was in red and everybody else was in um, very revealing uh, uh, S&M looking black leather, which wasn't American high school. It didn't look like American high school. It didn't look like these kids were pulling a prank. The leather-clad boys perform dangerous-looking, thrust-heavy choreography around and above the pit in the stage. Kenny Linden was a participant in this risky routine. Do you remember we had to dive over the pit? The, 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 the stage opened up and we had to sort of lie across it and we had to jump it and... And the stalls had no idea what we were doing because you couldn't see the pit from the stalls. You could only see it if you were in the circle or the dress circle. And so it was a completely ridiculous idea to have us jumping this pit that no one could see. And we were killing ourselves, really working hard. I mean, we came off that like we were, we'd just run a marathon. It was killer. And all for, for pretty much nothing with the funniest lyrics you could ever do. I mean, that rap thing we did was just silly. Here's the lyrics to that rap in full, which I shall perform for you now. Okay. <clears throat> Chop, kill the pig. Pig, pig, kill, kill. Kill, kill. We'll make him bleed. Here's his blood. Blood, blood. I'm just going to let that hang <laughs> for a minute. <laughs> it's almost like being there. Shall we move on? Yeah, fine. Charlotte as Chris gets one of the most quoted lines from the show. Can you deliver that one as well in full, please? Just mm-hmm. in case um, anyone missed it on that muffled recording. Of course. It's a simple little gig. You help me kill a pig and I've got some plans for the blood. That line would go on to haunt the writers of Carrie and is often quoted as one of its most ridiculously over-the-top moments. I'm going to get it on a mug. Kim Criswell in the audience has only just recovered from the fit of laughter she experienced during this sequence. There was a moment in the show that I screamed with laughter because gene anthony ray was in it remember him from fame and he played you know the bad boy um and there's the place where they're you know getting the pig's blood and the way they had staged it there was this sort of trough of light coming up that they're as if the pigs were down below the stage at one point they were doing this frenetic debbie allen way too much going on dance they're all dancing around you know in a pig frenzy pig blood frenzy and then it, at one point he he it all stops cold and he looks down and goes Shit, look at all them pigs. The whole house started to giggle. I don't think that's what they meant us to do. (laughs) Todd Graff, from the workshop performance of Carrie, recalls seeing the show in its Broadway previews. The workshop had focused on Act One only, so he was surprised to finally see how the second half began. That was insane with that, you know, where bodies were just sort of you couldn't see them. They would dive down into whatever that pit was supposed to be. I don't know why they keep pigs in a pit, but oh, pig pit, yes, as opposed to pig pen. And they would dive down, and then you would just see like bodies leap up over the kind of you know uh, 
periphery or horizon line that you could see, like, ah, and then back down disappearing to kill the pig, and then blood would spurt up. Chris swings what looks like a medieval sword around the pit in the stage, and we hear loud, pre-recorded oinks as the unseen pigs meet their end. Gene Anthony Ray scoops up pig's blood from the trough and smears it out across his topless body. The boys are chanting, kill the pig, 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 as this bizarre orgy plays out. Betty Blue Eyes has a lot to live up to. (laughs) (laughs) It was such a... It was so... It was, I mean, my hat is off to it because it was so brave and in its single-mindedness of, no, 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 we're not listening to anybody. This is what this show is. This little pig song is, of course, out for blood. Our namesake. The definition of revenge, but also, literally, what our leather-clad teens are doing. Clever. But in the early days, it had a different name and different lyrics. In Stratford previews, it was called Cracker Jack, named after the American popcorn snack which traditionally came with a prize inside the box in the days before kids started choking on everything. Let's listen to both. Why, dare I ask, was it called Cracker Jack? Well, you know, when you grab a box of Cracker Jacks and you open up the prize, you never know what you got to find. Um, okay. Terry had long argued that Brits, unfamiliar with such sophisticated American delicacies, just wouldn't get the reference. And so the lyrics and the title of the song were altered. If we'd done Cracker Jack, which is what it originally was, it made sense. It suddenly, it, it was a proper number, I thought. And then we changed, they changed it to this rap where we're going, kill the pig, 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 kill him now. Get the blood, 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 ooh, blood. And we go, what, why? And yeah, it, it, it was a classic moment. And why change it just before you're about to go to America where people will know what it means? <laughs> they could have picked a British snack, <laughs> a wagon wheel, a hula hoop. <laughs> Penguin. penguin. (laughs) If this scene also sounds like a lot to take in, spare a thought for the audience of at least one of the Broadway previews, at which Charlotte's microphone cuts out. So you don't even get the context. It's just the dancers in leather shouting about pigs for no discernible reason. (laughs) It's like an average... (laughs) (laughs) Night out. I mean, can you imagine how baffling that night must have been? (laughs) For Joey in the ensemble, performing this number for the first time led to a bit of an epiphany. It was the first night we were in Stratford. We were sold out. You couldn't get a ticket. Completely sold out the entire run. And I think it was the opening of Act 2, which is the Kill the Pig number, the infamous Kill the Pig, 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 Make It Bleed, Bleed, Bleed. We have these crazy mohawk punk hairdos, like weird. We look like a... like. Someone vomited uh, Mad Max and Clockwork Orange together. It was just very bizarre. So we do this, the boys do this great number. We're dancing like maniacs, like banshees out of hell. 
At the end of the number, Terry Hans, in his other role as lighting designer, beamed bright floodlights into the eyes of the audience to momentarily distract from the cast exiting the stage. But it meant they got a clear look at the audience staring back at them. And there must have been 600 people with their mouths aghast. You could hear a pin drop. No, not a clap, not a sound. People were just shocked, mortified by what we had just experienced because it's a Royal Shakespeare company. They had never seen anything of such radical interpretations. Ken Mandelbaum's book, Not Since Carrie, corroborates Joey's story. When the number ends, it says, a few applaud dutifully, but most look at the stage or each other with their mouths open, just like the audience at Springtime for Hitler, the show within the movie in The Producers. I'd forgotten that, but now that you say that, I absolutely remember. We all stood there. In the wings going, they're not clapping. Nothing's happening. We're awful. We're going to, this show is awful. We're going down. That's all I can remember. (laughs) So just out of interest, what happened to all that leather? Like the show itself, the costumes met an abrupt end. When we came off stage with those leather jackets on the last night in on Broadway, they took them off us and shredded them. The the American um, wardrobe union is so strong out there that they destroy all the or back then they destroyed all the costumes as you came off stage because you were not they had to remake them if they ever did the show again. They weren't going to use them again, so they were, took these beautiful leather jackets off us, and we were like, I would to keep that if I could. No, a travesty. In the new version of Carrie, tragically, Alpha Blood has been cut. But it is such a special moment in theatre history. That is true. It's been replaced with a song called A Night We'll Never Forget, which follows the kids getting ready for the prom in anticipation of their big night. It's just not the same. Out for Blood does live on, though, as there's a single verse of lyrics in the middle of the new song, just as we see Chris and Billy breaking into the farm. But the tribute is over and done with quickly, and there's not a topless, blood-smeared leather dancer in sight. Shame. Back to 1988, and our heroine Sue gets her big number, It Hurts to be Strong. Back in Stratford, Sally Ann Triplett had a different song, and it was a long time coming. She recalls. Um, in Stratford, my number was White Star, so I had this ballad called White Star, which was really pretty, And but I guess they wanted to, to make Sue a bit tougher, a bit stronger, a bit more, you know, self-willed, and and that this is what I want to do, I want... I want I want Tommy to take her to the prom. So they gave me this other number, but they didn't write it for about six weeks. Honest to God, I was waiting every day. They'd be like, and this is when Sue will sing her song. And yeah, this is when Sue will sing her song. And and, and then finally I got it. And I, I'm trying to remember what it was, but I, I, I know we were in tech um, and we were like coming, we were teching the second act, which was when the song was. And we were getting closer and closer, and I finally got my song like a day before we were taking it. Cutting it a bit fine. Interestingly, White Star uses the same melody as Heaven, which comes later in the show. Arriving in New York, she had to learn the new number, and she had a chance to reflect on the experience just last year. So I came here to do The Last Ship, which was the Sting musical, and we opened at uh, the Neil Simon in New York. And I was on the fourth floor, and it's, it's such a wonderful theatre because outside the building are these... Um, light bulbs so it's very sort of old-fashioned New York with um, Neil Simon and because I was on the fourth floor I was like right up with the end sort of thing and um, and it shines into the dressing room and one of the girls in the show she came in and she said 
hey Sally, are you excited to be um, on Broadway for the first time? And you know, I said to her, well, no, I've, I've, I've been on Broadway before, and she couldn't believe it. She's like, what do you mean? What, what, what show was it? And I said it was Carrie, and I couldn't remember. I knew it was called the Virginia Theatre, but I, I couldn't remember where it was. And she said, are you kidding me? And she held my hand and she took me to the window and we stood by these light bulbs. And she said, there, that's your theater. And it's the August Wilson, which was literally across the road. And I had these goosebumps. So I had this connection with the Virginia theater for ages. And then, and then about three years later, I went to see Groundhog Day. I went to see it twice, which was at the Virginia. I loved it, it was such a good show. And as I went in, I looked to my, to my left and I saw the piano or where the piano would have been where I was taught it hurts to be strong that night when, when they were kind of teaching it to me for the first time. And, you know, it's, it's, it's incredible, the, the, the memories and the full circle of everything. That's one of the things It's actually quite a relief between all the leather and jumping about to have one amazing singer standing on stage belting out a ballad. This show is a roller coaster. It's hard to be sure. It hurts to be Sue's solo is another part of the show which always seems to be constantly in flux. Not only did it change between Stratford and Broadway, it was also completely changed for the revival production where it appears as Once You See in Act One. And suddenly he'll be there Handsome and wise And probably a prince who could Oh God, I'm so scared What could go wrong? I should be prepared for the worst. Late in the writing process, Dean Pitchford and his collaborators thought there should be a moment for Carrie to take a breath and explore her newfound abilities. I know that in the roll-up to our rehearsals in Stratford, Michael and I wrote a song for Carrie in Act 2 called I'm Not Alone, um, in which she's getting ready for the prom and she, with her telekinetic powers, uses, because we we realized that we'd never seen Carrie enjoy her powers. It had always been a matter of fear and dread to her that she had this power. So um, Terry had this idea that he could, he would activate all these uh, moving effects. <clears throat> and so we wrote a song for Carrie to play with her hair hairbrush and to uh, have her dress swish around the room. It's quite nice to spend some time with Carrie when she's not being hurled around the stage or killing people with her laser fingers. Yes, we get to hear her thoughts as she looks forward to a more positive future. This is a classic emotional climax song, reminding our audience how close we've grown to Carrie and her plight before we head into the final scenes of the show. It's quite hard to see on the video, but she uses her telekinesis to dance with various objects, including her prom dress. I'm fairly sure there's a brief moment where her prom shoes do a little tap dance. And why not? Theatre fan Bob Sembiante was in the audience. They were just, they had lost control. 
and things that were being funny that shouldn't have been funny. Poor Lindsay Hately having to do the I'm not alone number with the self-levitating powder puff and the and the the the, the self-dancing tap shoes. Um, she she deserved an award just for getting through the number without laughing. However, the fun doesn't last for long as cranky old Margaret White heads upstairs to see what all the racket's about. She tries to persuade Carrie to hand over the dress and tells her that Tommy won't be coming to pick her up. Barbara's version is much more chatty, whereas Betty brings a more threatening edge. Give me the dress. No. I won't let you go. Leave me alone. He's not coming. He is coming. He's not coming. He is coming. He mustn't come. I don't want to fight with you, Mama. This is Satan's power. It's not Satan, Mama. It's me. It is evil. It's not evil, Mama. It's fun. The Lord will not be mocked, Harriet. Fun, Mama. Fun. It is a sin. There will be a judgment. There is danger. The power will destroy you. No. Carrie sings a brief reprise of the title song, trying to persuade her mother that she isn't, in fact, a witch. She leaves and Margaret sings When There's No One. The Stratford programme lists a song called Once I Loved a Boy in this position, but that never actually made it past early rehearsals before being replaced. The writers felt they needed to take advantage of Barbara Cook's unique voice and created this new song just for her. In Stratford, in Stratford, Michael and I went off and we wrote When There's No One. And we had not had that song for Margaret to sing after. I mean, what had happened was she has the scene with Carrie. Carrie says, I'm going to the prom, you can't stop me. She goes off and Margaret stands center stage and she quotes the Bible. She says, thou shall not suffer a witch to live. And so we have at that moment, her announcement that she is going to kill her daughter. But what we don't have is her, the gut-wrenching, the decision how it rings her out because she truly loves her daughter and we had gotten all the way to Stratford without addressing that issue so Michael and I went off and wrote when there's no one of this song had another motive, an attempt to placate Barbara Cook and persuade her to stay with the production. And so it was not just a question of serving Margaret, the character, but serving Barbara Cook. We had one of the greatest stars in the history of Broadway and we needed to give her something more than beating her daughter up and throwing her in a closet in Act One. And so we gave her something that she could float in her, in that incredible, inimitable style of hers. And that was the, um, the mandate for When There's No One. And it would not have happened if, if Barbara Cook had not been the voice in our ear.
this song has become a bit of a musical theatre standard, and although written with Barbara in mind, it later became a staple for Betty Buckley, who still performs it to this day. And, interestingly, Lindsay Haightley also did an online rendition of it this past Halloween. It was incredible. I hope it's planted the seed in some producer's mind to get Lindsay in to play Margaret in a full production one day. <gasps> and I can be Carrie. Despite mm. its dark intentions, it's a heartbreaking song and a welcome moment of calm and reflection in all the craziness, setting the course for the show's dark ending. Kenny and Lindsay used to watch Betty from the wings. Just stunning. And I used to stand, because I was saying to Michelle earlier, or Shelley, um, our entrance was on stage left for the prom, and she sang that just before that. And I always used to scoot down to the front to just watch around, because the, the stage, the set was a big box, and you couldn't really see onto the stage unless you went to certain places. And I used to just nip to the edge and just watch Betty, and she would be crying, and just every night I'd go, This is just amazing. And then we went on. Then a bell tolls, and as we all know, that means prom time. Yeah! Yeah! Thus our cast returns for another very special number. What a night! W-O-T-T-A night. Nice. And they're presumably exhausted from all the thrusting and smearing. All dressed in unflattering boxy white formal wear. We have it on good authority from our American correspondents that these do not look like typical prom outfits. By this point in the show, having suffered leather, spandex unitards and even mismatching underwear from a now defunct British department store, they'd had enough. Shelley Hodgson remembers. Do you remember going to that... I think it was a cafe in in New York and we sort of mutinied and we invited Debbie along to say we've got to do something because no one's going to know what we're doing and what we're wearing. No, I we we can't, I'm not saying we we mutinied but we got Debbie along in our lunch hour and said Debbie you've got to help us. This is not making sense. And we need to wear our own clothes. Maybe if we just come in and we just wear we just costume it ourselves because the whole Greek thing and I think it was maybe in previews when the audience was roaring laughing. But we were desperate to try and sort of go, okay, if there's one thing we could change that might help, like you say, this should work, what can we do? Nothing was changed. That shiny white colour scheme will shortly go on to haunt the costume designer. Meanwhile, the side walls of our space age set rotate into mirrors. And lights up on a massive shiny disco ball. <laughs> Peter McIntosh, a set design student who watched the tech rehearsal for Carrie, remembers this unique prop. And it was the most astonishing thing. It was like this, the biggest mirror ball you have ever seen in your life, bigger than a person. And it was just, it sat in the corner of this white box on a little base that turned it. So it wasn't even hanging in the air. It was on the floor. And it was just, and it filled the sky with, I mean, it was stunning, a stunning visual effect. But the ball was not long for this world. Debbie just walked on and said, that's got to go. And she had them remove it. And as the stagehand was wheeling it off the stage, I can't remember how much it was, but it was something like £20,000. And he said, that's £20,000 worth of set going. And I just thought, you can buy a flat for that. 
because you could then I, often when i was doing shows at the rsc i would i would when i was in their store i think it might still have been there i was i used to kind of snoop to see if i could find some carry stuff farewell massive shiny disco ball Money well spent, if you ask me. Are you following all this? Just about. <laughs> uh, they now perform a sort of space-age mating ritual. Tommy Ross enters in a sort of puffy white tracksuit for some reason, <laughs> alongside his date for the evening. None other than Miss Carrie White. In a suspiciously large dress. Can we expect a surprise reveal? Mm, we'll see. Miss Gardner reassures Carrie with a quick reprise of unsuspecting hearts and Tommy encourages her to the dance floor where he croons our next number, Heaven. Now, bear in mind that the script has been so heavily hacked to its bare bones that in the eyes of the audience, Tommy and Carrie have, until this point, barely met. In the workshop production and the early scripts, there are extended scenes where, as in the book and the movie, Tommy visits Carrie at home to reluctantly persuade her to come to the prom and slowly starts to realise that she's beautiful inside and out. Here, though, after a brief meeting earlier in the show, he's now essentially professing his undying love for her. It starts when you feel the way By this point, the audience members can barely contain themselves. Contagious giggles start to sweep around the room as Tommy, seemingly forgetting his long-term girlfriend, tells Carrie that dancing with her is indeed almost like heaven. Heaven was originally written as an octet, a device in which eight distinct characters' voices sing the song simultaneously around the stage. And you can hear that version in some of the Stratford recordings. The writers had been aiming for a very layered, very lush choral sound, but it became too complicated to follow, with too much sound, too many notes and too many words. And so it was simplified. Enter our villains, Chris and Billy, who are, remember, banned from the prom. Stephen Dolgenoff recalls the audience hopelessly trying to keep track. Charlotte came out when she, in, in the final version, Charlotte as, as Chris sort of passed with Billy and she's sort of wearing a black leather bustier with studs and she's singing about voting, like I'm ready to vote. And, you know, you see her like filling out her ballot as she's crossing the stage. In the first preview, she she crosses the stage, but she's wearing, once again, red leather, which made her pop out and she's singing, is the blood ready yet? And the whole audience laughed. She's like walking by and she goes, is the blood ready yet? And the whole audience laughs. Seeing the show again a few nights later, more changes. So that was gone. The red was gone and she was in white and saying, I'm ready to vote. So an improvement. Despite its escalating sense of ridiculousness, Heaven's a nice song and fans miss it in the revival, where it's been replaced with a reprise of Dreamer in Disguise, the poem that Tommy sang earlier in the show. The octet version is particularly beautiful and perhaps with more context around Tommy's sudden infatuation with Carrie, it could have worked. Back to the prom and of course Chris has fixed the vote. In the early Stratford performances there's a version of the script where the votes tie. (laughs) 
Harry and Tommy are level pegging with Matthew Dickens and Kath Coffey, which, as we know, are the real names of the actors playing those characters. <laughs> like much of the script, that bit was cut by Broadway, and we go straight to a verse with Sue realising her mistake as Carrie and Tommy win the vote. As she hears her name read out, Carrie can't believe her luck. The new lovebirds make their way to be crowned prom king and queen, which, of course, leads us to... The Destruction! Coming up right after this message. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at luckylandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yes, it's The Destruction, the iconic climax of both Stephen King's novel and Brian De Palma's movie. In those versions of the story, evil Chris has rigged a bucket of pig's blood above the stage and, determined not to allow Carrie one ounce of happiness, pulls the rope at the key moment to drench her in the sticky liquid. Pig's blood for a pig. Or at least that's what's meant to happen. In the ceiling, there's a big square hole in the ceiling. And I, you look at that and you kind of go, well, I can see what's going to happen there. I mean, obviously, climax of the show, that's where the blood's going to come from. And it'll be spectacular. It'll be a, an incredible moment that, I mean, that makes so much sense. They were up in the, they're in the, you know, whatever, the, the eaves of the, the, the gymnasium. Um, and that's obviously where they're going to pour the blood from. The scene in the movie is often used as an example of great filmmaking. De Palma builds the tension incredibly over several minutes, making the moment even more shocking. The writers wanted a similarly tense build-up and shocking blood drop on stage, triggering Carrie's epic telekinetic meltdown. Let's read what the stage directions in the original script for the musical say. What did they want to achieve? She opens her eyes wide and they're glowing, literally glowing in the darkness. And, extending her arms in front of her, she flexes and lasers come out of her fingers, flying over the audience's heads and slamming two side theatre doors shut. In the orchestral section that follows, the dream becomes a nightmare as Carrie unleashes her full arsenal of supernatural powers. It goes on. Utter pandemonium ensues as she seals off the gym, trapping everyone inside like fish in an aquarium. In a blaze of special effects, music, lighting and dance, she enacts her terrible revenge against classmate and teacher, friend and enemy alike. At the height of this spectacular holocaust, Carrie walks through the fiery gymnasium, the stage blazing like Valhalla behind her as she exits. Wow. That's what we want to see. In fact... What actually happens, with absolutely no build-up, is... Oh, 
Chris runs on from the wings and is met by Billy with a plastic bucket. <laughs> I had to come with a bucket and like hit it over her head. And so you see this like red glob, like like a blob, little blob kind of go, you know, and, and then she would have to kind of put it on her. Anyway, it was so bad. And I remember being so embarrassed by it. Then I saw the show twice in Stratford and couldn't believe my eyes when Jean Anthony Ray just put a galvanised bucket on her head, ran on, put a bucket on her head and ran off. I was like, is, I mean, is that it? This is the, this is the climax of, this is the, this is the moment that every single person who knows this story is waiting for. And that's how you deliver it. There's a little pool of blood on, on the stage and all of those phenomenal white walls that need to now be soaking red are still white. Our prestige, it was like, the, it was like, are you serious? Are you serious? You like, you're one moment. The crew was unable to sufficiently soak Lindsay with blood without coating the stage in slippery corn syrup mixture and causing her microphone to malfunction. Understandably, this was an issue for the final few moments of the show. If, if there's so much blood that goes over me that the microphone is going to be affected by it and which way can we make this work? So you wanted this amazing image, but at the same time, you've got to be able to hear. Otherwise, it was just like a distorted sound and, and things have improved enormously in 30 years. So lots of those things would be ironed out. And crucially, the liquid had to be thin enough to be washed out of the dazzling white costumes each day. They wanted um, a, a blood that would be able to wash out, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. because obviously, costumes you know, costumes were a nightmare. The laundry bill, I mean, I stupidly am wearing white. There was complete coincidence, but we everything was white and we were dealing with blood and there was no way you could wash the costumes and get blood on them. Again, a fundamental kind of, um, had no one thought about this? Numerous attempts were made in rehearsals and the Stratford previews to make the blood dump more dramatic, including altering the consistency of the liquid and the angle of the throw. Theatre fan Keith Butler was living near Stratford at the time and was one of the very few people to see the show at the start and end of the run there. In those few short weeks, it was clear that Terry and the team were trying anything and everything to make a bold statement with the blood drop. What I do recall was there was a change um, you know, with the the bucket scene and the blood and, and the rest of it. And I think that um, what had happened in the first production, the first time I saw it, uh, as I recall, it, it was definitely sort of blood coming out of the bucket and which was, because it was quite a sort of horrific destruction type scene. I think that, and again, that would have been sort of Terry, I believe, and the way that that was done with all the lighting effects and the rest of it was quite sort of uh, frightening. And of course, the, the blood added to that as well. Um, and then the second time I saw it, 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 again, if my memory serves me right, Chris, it, it, was, uh, it was red petals that came out of the bucket. And I don't, I don't know how true that was. Maybe I'm making that up, but I don't think I am. It definitely wasn't liquid. Petals? Come on now. Uh, and so it didn't have the same sort of effect. And I can only think that uh, the, the liquid had got stuck in a Lindsay's mic or something or whatever. And I, I guess that that's what's, what's what have happened. The crew considered alternatives, including cutting the liquid blood altogether and replacing it with a lighting effect. Uh, you know, they were like, well, let's put some red lights on you. Uh, really, really, you know, intense red lights. 
right, that didn't work. By the time the first Broadway previews came around, an impactful solution had still not been found. Every night at that climactic moment of the story, a wave of disappointment and disbelief swept across the audience when an insubstantial drizzle of pale red goop was poured on poor Lindsay's head. The cast came on holding a bucket of blood, walked up to Carrie and dumped it on her. Yeah, really? What about the whole tension in this? I mean, first of all, you're comparing it to the movie and that whole sequence with the with following the cord and, you know, kind of setting up the tension of what's going to happen. Literally, it was so anticlimactic. It was the most ridiculous. Literally, they walked on, dumped some blood, and then they all kind of like, you know, ran around as if they were being, I mean, it was, so A, there was no big blood, right? I mean, it was all about the blood and there's no big blood. It's like a little pool. We're expecting obviously something really spectacular to happen because it's the highlight of the movie. Everybody knows what's going to happen. And he, as you know, just walks up to her and slowly just dumps a thing on her head. And the audience does in fact boo. Not like a huge chorus of boos, but you hear like, boo, oh. But I remember thinking, oh, that's just for tonight. That's part of why we were delayed a half an hour Whatever their thing is, it's just not on tonight. But no, this wasn't a temporary fix. Carrie's big climax, a moment of huge anticipation and tension in the movie, featured a few blobs of red syrup chucked at our hero from the side. Ken Mandelbaum describes the moment succinctly in Not Since Carrie. Chris's big moment of revenge is so poorly staged it gets laughs. Billy runs on and plunks a small bucket of raspberry topping over Carrie's head. Lindsay felt awkward having to perform a full telekinetic meltdown following a fairly ineffective splashing. At her request, attempts were made to intensify the blood dump. Night after night, she was doused with an array of different substances. Terry and his team attempted to find a happy medium with the amount of red liquid needed. Enough to make a dramatic impact, but not destroy her mic. Let's put in the bucket, when you get the bucket on your head, let's put sponges inside, soaked in blood... And then when, and I remember Lindsay, bless her, she had the bucket on her head and then she had to kind of push the bucket onto her face. And then when she took the bucket off, it looked like she had like loads of blusher. Into the, and, I, and then Lindsay just said, um, could you not just like throw a bucket of blood on me? Like, oh my God, yeah, what a great idea. Director Terry Hans was reluctant to compromise his artistic vision with an epic horror movie style soaking, wanting the audience to focus on Carrie's emotional transformation and not a tacky special effect. He even tried to justify it as part of his avant-garde approach to staging the story. He was bemused by the audience reaction to the disappointing climax. In an interview, he reflected, I'd been trying to replace a splosh with a moment of humiliation, but they didn't want it in sophisticated character terms. They didn't want humiliation. They wanted a bright, clear impact. So we covered her in blood, head to toe, splosh. Lindsay always said it tasted very good. She used to eat most of it. Because I remember the taste of it, you know. No, I loved it. When we, when we, when we got the, the taste that I really was, there was by the end, I was like, this is like toffee apple. And I, I was like, oh, I can sort of handle this. So if I swallowed a bit, it was all right. By the final performance, the cast took matters into their own hands. In the last night, we said water it down and he literally 
threw it at Lindsay. She nearly fell backwards. It was with such a force. And we were all splattered. But the thing was, is that's kind of what everyone wanted. And we were absolutely slipping and smut. So as the staircase came down, all beneath was us covered in red. The walls had blood up. Everything was. And then Lindsay literally shivered, incredibly, coming through, covered head to toe in blood. That was, unfortunately, our last night. To enhance the visual image of Carrie being covered in blood, Lindsay's dress had snaps down one side so that she could wear an even bloodier version underneath. It was Charlotte's job to whip off the top layer amidst the commotion and on the Stratford bootleg video, you can even see her flinging it off stage. Just before opening night on Broadway, Alexander Reed, the costume designer, came up with a new design for the prom dress to make this quick change slightly smoother. But that dress didn't match the one that Carrie had danced with earlier in the show. As the previews went on... um her prom dress kept changing. You know, she danced with a magic version of her prom dress. She had a different prom dress in every performance I saw. It was never the one that she danced with. Because the one that she danced with had sleeves to make it look sort of human, but she never had one with sleeves. After being splattered by the blood, Carrie predictably goes apeshit. <laughs> As her castmates laugh, either in real life or in her mind, she starts to pick them off one by one. The destruction number itself is packed with musical references to other songs in the show, creating a spiralling sensation that replicates Carrie's total meltdown. What about the finger lasers? Well, this scene really allowed Terry, who, remember, had also designed the lighting for the show, to go to town. An arsenal of lighting effects and laser beams illustrate Carrie's destruction of the gym, illuminating the theatre like a rock concert. It looks very 90s Vegas. But laser beam massacres come with strict safety regulations. Do you remember the laser beam issue? where in Stratford you were allowed to fire laser beams yeah. directly at us because we didn't have health and safety in Britain. In America, oh. the moment we got to Broadway, they said, we can't use that now. We're allowed to use laser beams, but they're not allowed to hit anyone. Yeah. So every time we were shot with a laser beam, where we'd done these amazing deaths that Debbie's yeah. sort of got us all to improvise these yeah. deaths one day, you weren't allowed to kill us anymore. So we had to do it even though the laser beam yeah. had completely missed us. We still had to die. As the destruction concludes, there is an exhausted silence and Carrie is left standing on a tall pedestal, dripping blood. And then something truly jaw-dropping happens. And then all of a sudden the pedestal rises and at the same time the ceiling um, jackknifes down from the back, so it's hinged upstage in the ceiling and comes down and it's this white stairway with Betty Buckley, Mrs. White, the very top of the stairs and there's a cutout so that Lindsay literally slides through the cutout as the ceiling literally covers. Now here, again, this covers the entire playing area. While this majestic set piece fell into place, the cast had to keep on dying. And the staircase was coming down. It had got to about a third of the way down and they said, oh, you've all died. 
um, can you keep dying until the staircase drops? And Debbie said, just do it all again. And we all had to just stand up and start staggering around and then die again. Representing the collapsing ceiling of the school and serving as a heavenly metaphor with the aesthetics of a classical Greek temple or sacrificial altar, the staircase was a true engineering marvel, which had eaten up a good proportion of the show's budget. It was made up of 39 steps, a nod by designer Ralph Coltai to Hitchcock's classic spy thriller. It had remained out of sight until this moment, and because it took up the entire stage area, a second lighting rig had needed to be built above it to cover the final moments of the show. Why have just one multi-million dollar lighting rig when you can have two? The descending staircase was Terry's attempt at replicating the kind of memorable, spectacular moments seen in mega musicals like Les Mis, where the height of 80s engineering was employed to make an enormous set of barricades rotate onto the stage. The staircase that comes down and crushes everybody is extraordinarily dramatic. I know you've probably seen photos of that big stairway to heaven at the end. Well, but what you don't realise is, is how it came down I mean, maybe you've seen footage of it, but it just, it really looked like people were being crushed beneath it. And, you know, she was sort of in a cutout and it sort of went around her. It really was dramatic. Sally Ann as Sue watched on from the downstage corner. And and that, I mean, wow, it looked amazing. It looked And I watched the whole thing because as my character was outside this huge staircase, and, and I watched the whole ball and it, yeah, it was amazing. At the top of the staircase, transported there in a very expensive backstage lift, appeared Margaret White. One audience member on Broadway is said to have shouted, Betty Buckley, come on down! I mean, they were really losing it by this point, weren't they? <laughs> oh, God. I remember the, 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 the gasp of the audience as you started seeing Betty Buckley come down that giant white staircase saying, what is this going to be? Where, where are we? Basically, she descends the stairs and Carrie stabs her. I don't know where Carrie, she must have had it on her, the knife. Um, I don't remember how she got the knife, but it must have been in her wardrobe because the prop was there and she, you know, kills the mother. At some performances, another malfunction. Betty Buckley's got a knife. That also didn't work. People laughed at that. And then Lindsay Hately sort of rolled down the stairs. People laughed at that. It was, I didn't, it was, it was mean, but like that's what they did. And, you know, it was kind of sad. Back in Stratford, the staircase had been at the centre of yet another feud. In fact, it had been high up on Barbara Cook's list of official reasons to leave Carry the Musical. Of course, when this staircase came in, it was painted brilliant white, and above it was a whole lighting rig, which was all in brilliant white as well. And Barbara standing at the top, of course, just couldn't see the stairs, because there were no edges to the stairs. So she said to, quite rightly, said to... um, Uh, to Terry, I can't see anything. You know, this is impossible. Terry agreed to do something about it and asked the RSC's technical department to build a metal handrail down the centre of the staircase, allowing the ageing Barbara a chance of descending without breaking a hip. He had it painted white to blend in, but set designer Ralph Coltai was less than impressed when he arrived the next day to discover his very expensive, very metaphorical staircase had been blemished with a crude health and safety measure. I mean, of course, of course, he's furious. I, I mean, I would be furious. He'd, what he designed, this, you know, a, a set that you've been looking at for two hours, and then suddenly the whole roof 
caves in, sort of hinges from the back wall down to fill the stage. And it's just a massive staircase. And it's a, that, that in itself is an incredible visual gesture. It's the sort of, um, you know, halfway to heaven sort of moment, isn't it? The, the kind of, uh, you know, I mean, absolutely the stuff of Greek tragedy. And yet when it came down, right in the middle of it was this, what looked like, um, yes, I mean, a sort of remedial railing that had been poked right down the middle of it. And, you know, you're asking Barbara Cook, legend of Broadway theatre, to to start at the top and virtually get to the bottom, probably while singing, I imagine. I would say that was a big ask. I'd want a railing. <laughs> Ralph was so furious that he had put this handrail in for Barbara that overnight, the following night, he painted it red. So, of course, you now had this enormously brilliant white staircase with a red handrail right all the way up the top of it, um, right through the centre of it. Uh, Amazing. Um, Very, very funny. But, uh, yes, it got repainted. Dean and the writers were frustrated that such an enormous amount of focus and resource had been placed on the show's design. They felt it sacrificed a powerful, clear story, particularly the ending. My collaborators and I were not happy with the the design that the show took. Um, We were constantly being assured by Terry Hands that, oh, it's going to be brilliant, it's going to be brilliant, it's going to be wonderful. Um, And a lot of of what was on stage, or what wasn't on stage, I mean, the stage was a big blank space with a couple of units that rolled on. And for the most part, it was in preparation for the final reveal when after the destruction, an enormous staircase lowers down and uh, Margaret walks down that staircase. It's, um, it, it, was, it was a lot of everything being pushed out of the way in order to make one moment happen. Eventually, Margaret plunges the knife into Carrie's back. She retaliates by using her powers to stop her mother's heart. This method of dispatching Mrs White was based on the closing chapter of the novel, not like Piper Laurie's memorably orgasmic death in the movie, which was caused by a barrage of flying knives and other spiky phallic utensils. So, again, if you're unfamiliar with the source material, like much of the audience, chances are you'd struggle to understand what had happened. Margaret just sort of flops over. (laughs) It's worth noting that all of the above happens extremely quickly, making it even harder to comprehend. Where the prom sequence in the movie takes up 18 minutes of its runtime, here it takes barely five from start to finish. That's the climactic moment that the whole show has been building to. Done and dusted. Barely five minutes. We hear the closing notes of the show and the lights go down, leaving the audience confused. And then, in the darkness, that extraordinary moment that Lindsay recounted. I don't know whether it was a first preview or whatever, but but at the end of it, the lights went out and there was a mixture of boos and cheers and it was just like what the fuck is going yeah. on you know is this do they like us do they hate yeah. us what what is it and 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 betty sort of rushed down to the front and she held my hand in the dark and i looked at her and she just went let's see and the lights went up and as and they went up and then literally 
the audience erupted and stood on their feet. It was a terrifying moment for Lindsay and Betty. Kenny remembers his frustration at how the audience was led to react. There's a way to make the audience feel comfortable enough to react in the way that you want them to rather than just the way they feel. And I, I think Terry maybe missed some of that. In, and allowing you and Betty to have that insecure moment should not have happened. There should have been something really clever to make them go, wow. Bob remembers the atmosphere from the audience's perspective. But that ending when the audiences were booing and cheering at the same time, I remember I was sitting across the aisle from Michael Rupert, who had just finished doing Sweet Charity with Debbie Allen, and thinking, what the hell is he going to say when he sees her backstage? It's one of those moments where you have to think quick and say, wow, that, that blood was really red, wasn't it? Or, you know, oh, those kids are real, really sweating up a storm up there, weren't they? On Broadway, Betty Buckley had been able to join Lindsay for a bow, but in Stratford, Barbara Cook, quite frail, had been left stranded further up the staircase. It was better that she stayed, stayed where she was and we did a bow there and then some of the boys helped her down to the yeah. front. And I think that when, when we got to New York and, and Barbara, uh, Betty was a lot younger mm. and a, you know a lot more sprightly. Because of their awkward placement on the staircase, the leading ladies, who would usually be rewarded with the final bow at the curtain call, were in fact the first to appear. The rest of the cast were left to file on in the middle of the standing ovation. And I think that's what threw the audience as well, because the staircase was in. We were all off in the wings and we all just had to trail on in a straight line from the edge because there was nowhere to do, there was no way to. Nowadays, you would never do a finale where people just walk on from the sides and bow and then exit. And we all walked on from the sides, bowed, turned up stage. There's Lindsay and Betty and they would do their bow and then we'd all just walk off. So it had the very, a very surreal. I don't. I think we all came on in a straight line to start with. The final audiences on Broadway, flocking to see the show they had heard so much about, were aware they had been part of theatrical history. As the last performance came to a close, at about 10.30pm on May the 15th, 1988, an extraordinary thing happened. Last performance. The whole audience stood. It was completely sold out. And they wouldn't leave. And they wouldn't leave. They put the lights up. We all just stood on stage. They kept clapping. Nobody would leave. The cast didn't leave. They didn't leave. They were just standing ovations at the end because it was so silly. You know, they loved it. And then we all went next door to, is it Delaney's? Is, what's that place called? What's that place called across? There's like a very a famous sort of, and then all the cast and all the audience all went there. It's like no one wanted to let it go, you know. But literally, they stood and stood and stood and they couldn't get mad the theatre. And that was it. Carry On Broadway had closed after just 16 previews and five performances. Lindsay headed up to her dressing room to recover. I remember sort of walking up the stairs at the end of the show and leaving a trail of, <laughs> and everyone yeah. slipping all over <laughs> the way up. And we, in, in uh, the Virginia Theatre, we were limited in the kind of um, uh, showers. That we, we were, yeah. And I was like, please let me have mine first. Ah, uh, Carrie. There's never been a musical like her. That's not the end of our story, though, because we'll be checking in again with the cast to find out what they did next and how this extraordinary experience changed their lives. And we'll be speaking to some of the incredible people who, decades later and against all odds, brought Carrie back from the grave. Coming up on Out for Blood. You know, one of the dancers in the show taped a camera up in the balcony and just had this brilliant idea to just get it down somehow um, and there are bootleg recordings of it and stuff that it was like a person who was like not interested in trading they were like i will sell you this carry audio 
for you know what it was probably a hundred dollars it was like i remember this they were it was like expensive so i kind of went on this crazy mission i just wanted to know everything i could about carrie anyway i bought a blank videotape with me and i decided if i got the opportunity i was going to leave with the carrie tape and leave them with the blank tape um and i did and so i'm in i was probably you know a freshman in high school at this point literally get a call one day from Betty Buckley's attorney. Without even hearing it, I remember thinking, of course we have to sing a duet from Carrie. Of course we have to sing Carrie because, you know, I do have a strong streak of wanting to give people what they want as much as I can. And I know people want to hear that music. This was back then in the 90s. I just thought, wow, we should do Carrie. It's the perfect show for Stage Door. I traded my original Broadway poster for the score. <laughs> And he came to my boyfriend at the time's apartment with this score. And like we did an ex like a drug deal for that score. And then I remember getting it and like running to campus being like, I have it, I have it. Still to this day, people still say to me, Carrie White eats shit because that was my line and I'm the one that said that. Out for Blood is a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. For more information about us and the podcast, please visit us online at bpn.fm slash outforblood. If you enjoyed Out for Blood, please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you downloaded from. And don't forget to subscribe. Find us at Out for Blood Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and Out for Blood Pod on Twitter. Out for Blood was hosted and produced by me, Holly Morgan. And me, Chris Adams. Edited and produced by Tom Moores. He's a very nice boy. Paddy Jervis is our audio consultant. Original music by Odin Ornhill Marson and artwork by Rebecca Pitt. Thanks this week to Dean Pitchford, Lindsay Haightley, Sally Ann Triplett, Charlotte D'Amboise, Georgia Otterson, Michelle DuVernay, Shelley Hodgson, Suzanne Thomas, Joey McNeely, Kenny Linden, Eric Gilliam, Michelle Nelson Mann, Audrey Levine, and Jeremy Sturt. Thanks also to Peter McIntosh, Todd Graff, Bob Sembiante, and Keith Butler. And our superfans, Kim Criswell, Peter Michael Marino, Stephen Dolgenoff, Mark Silver, Kate Moira Ryan, and Scott Briefer. Oh, and you can see that spine-tingling performance of When There's No One by Lindsay Haightley online at theatrecafe.co.uk slash channel. See you next week. Oh, Tom. Yeah? Shit. Look, Look at, at all, all these pigs. pigs. Press the button. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.